The End Times Part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter, on. Uh, this pandemic has been something else for us, but I do know that people have started to travel now. And I know the flights are like booked, they're, they're more expensive than they've ever been. Back in May, though, my family and I, we took a trip out to Southern California, and the tickets were still really cheap. I mean, I pay like 125 bucks round trip. It was really great. You can't find it. It's like 600 bucks now. But so, got my deal. Really happy about it. The whole family took a trip out to Southern California. My wife and I spent our first three years of our marriage there. We have a lot of friends that we uh, have made over the years there in Southern California. And so the trip was only five nights and six days. It wasn't very long. We were able to stay at Newport Beach, a beautiful, beautiful place in Orange County. And the trip was memorable so much so that my kids still talk about it. But really what made the trip special was because we knew exactly when it started, but we knew more importantly when it was going to end. If we didn't have that piece of information, it really would affect our trip for those five nights, six days, or who knows? Could you imagine if we didn't have an end date and we just said, we're going to fly out to California and we'll see what happens. Don't know when we're going to come back. It really would affect how our trip was and how we were living in the present during those days that we were there. But because we knew the end of the trip, it informed us in who we needed to connect with because we couldn't get together with everyone. It would have been impossible. We got together with two of our closest friends out there. Um, I wanted to take my kids to some of my favorite places to eat, Bro Darts. If you guys have gone to Southern California, you want to make sure you spend some time at Bro Darts. They have the best pork spring rolls. And so we went there, went to In-N-Out, different places, went to the beach. We just really planned out the time that it was really impactful for all of us. And, uh, and my kids still talk about it till this day. But that end, knowing when the trip was going to end, was key. And that's why we're starting this, that's why we started this series last week. We're covering the very fifth and last discourse. It's called the end times. The end times. Jesus spends two chapters, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, talking and preparing his disciples and every single one of us what's going to happen in the end. Because if we don't know that, if we don't know what's going to happen in the end, it would drastically impact how we live our lives today in the present. And that's a sad thing. The sad thing for a lot of us as Christians, how many of you ever think about the end? How many of you really believe the end is going to come one day? Because if we don't live our lives knowing that and believing in that truth, it'll affect how you live your life in the present. And for some of us, we might be going through some really difficult challenges in our lives today, and the present suffering that you might be experiencing because you don't know the end, you don't know what's going to happen in the end, uh, it really affects how you live your life today. And if you've really had a better understanding of the end, of what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back, it will even make sense of what you're going through today, as hard and as difficult as it might be. So as we enter into this fifth and last discourse, Jesus is preparing us for the end times. What is he really preparing us for? That's what I want to talk to you about today. That Jesus is trying to prepare you and I for the end times and to get us. And Sunita talked to us last Sunday about sort of are we in the end times? The answer to that is yes, absolutely. But we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming back. And we're going to look at it this week, but especially next week, of why Jesus chooses not to know. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 15 to 35. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. 
Um, if you have your Bibles with you, get your pen ready. We're going we're gonna to underline a couple things here. I love doing that. Uh, I like underlining my Bible. Some of you don't like to, but I enjoy doing that. Uh, so here we go, verse 15. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious objects that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the time of calamity shortened, not a single person will survive but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Some of your translation says God's elect. Verse 23, then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. So if someone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or look, he's hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will give no light. The stars will fall from the sky. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. Underline that. Deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. Circle the word all. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with mighty blasts of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, um, open our eyes. Open our hearts. We spent the entire year talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And really, God, you taught us that through Jesus Christ so that we could be prepared for the end times. Because how difficult it's going to be for every single one of us. So God, I pray that this passage, this incredible, difficult, long passage... I pray that it would carry weight in our hearts today. And you would transform us. You would transform us to be the kind of person you truly, truly desire us to be. And God, may we be take seriously the things that you're preparing us for from this day forward. So I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. All right, so what is Jesus really preparing us for? Well, before we could really talk about that, what we need to first establish is simply this. Jesus had really no idea 
the exact time and date of when he was coming. He didn't. All right, he didn't. It was really like the disciples, like when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, they all sort of flipped out and they thought, okay, Jesus is coming back. He's literally coming back any day. And when you read the beginning books of some of the New Testament books, especially the epistles, like read 1 Thessalonians, Paul really believed Jesus was coming back any day. You know how we know that? Because he told people in 1 Thessalonians, don't go to work. Why go to work? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And then you read 2 Thessalonians, after a few years later, he says, go back to work. He realized it's going to take a little while, right? But it's the disciples who thought he was literally coming back any day now. But Jesus didn't know. And the reason why he didn't know is not because he didn't know, but it's because he chose not to know. Because Jesus was fully human. He wasn't just God. And what we learn in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, I love this verse. This is what he says. This is what Paul says. And he teaches us what Jesus did before he came into this earth. It says, instead, he, which is Jesus, gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Why does Jesus not know exactly when he's going to come back in the second coming? Because he gave up his divine privileges to enter into this world. That's why he doesn't know. He chose not to know. And that's why he's fully human. And also, he's fully God. Amen? And that's why in verse 36, Jesus has no problems declaring this. He's not insecure about it. He truly knows. He says in verse 36, however, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And so here's the deal. If Jesus doesn't know when he's exactly going to come back 2,000 years ago, even though he was fully God and fully man, nobody will know. So don't ever believe in those who predict and set days and the time. Say, well, Jesus is coming back on this day. Don't ever believe it. Don't ever believe it. Because if Jesus didn't know, nobody will know. Nobody will know. So why does Jesus teach us this? Why does, why does Matthew focus two chapters on the end times? Why? Is it so that you and I can obsess over the exact time and date when Jesus might be coming? Absolutely not. He wants to prepare us that if these signs are happening, as Sunita talked about it last week, like natural disasters, calamity, murder, violence, different things like that, right? Fathers and mothers and children going against each other. Like evil prevailing in that way. He says when those signs are there, just know that I'm gonna, the end might be near. To prepare us. He's trying to prepare us. What is he preparing us for? He's preparing you and I for godly living. That he wants you and I to embrace a lifestyle that literally reflects how Jesus Christ lived while he was on this earth. Can you and I do it? Absolutely we can. We can. As imperfectly as we, as, as we do it sometimes, you and I should desire to want to live a godly life. It should be something that literally becomes a true authentic passion of yours to want to live more like God. To want to embrace a godly lifestyle. Because when we do that, you will begin to live under the power and under the, uh, under, the, under the beauty of God's love, his grace, and his mercy. But really what it does then, it prepares us for godly living. So when you look at this passage, what are the three things that Jesus is trying to help you to embrace so that you can begin to live a godly life? What are those three things? Here's the first one. You know what it is? It's for you to expect and endure suffering. If you want to embrace a godly lifestyle, you have to expect and be willing to endure suffering. Because in the end times, when the end is coming, 
the amount of suffering that we will all endure, not just Christians and non-Christians, it's non-Christians as well, is going to be exceptional unlike any other time the world has ever known. We have to expect that and we have to endure it. If we don't, you're not going to live a godly life. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 15 again. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilegious objects that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. That's how bad the suffering is going to be. The suffering is going to be so bad that you don't even have time to pack. You're just going to flee. A person out in the field must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. You're not going to even have time to get a coat because the suffering is going to be that bad. And then he says how terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen one. In some of your translations, again, it says elect. The elect are Christians, people who have surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to shorten it because of the Christians. And then verse 23, then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. Jesus is preparing us for the end times so that you and I will not fall away, so that no suffering, no amount of suffering will lead us away from Jesus Christ. That's godly living. Will you expect and endure suffering in the end? Jesus wants you to, and he wants us to. See, why is Jesus teaching us this? He's teaching us this because all of us, let's just be honest, we expect God to make our lives comfortable. And whenever our lives aren't comfortable, we often even wonder if God's really there. We question his existence or his sovereignty or his goodness in our lives. A lot of us, we've embraced sort of this prosperity gospel, even though you'll never admit it, you do. Because you believe that as long as you believe in God, he's going to protect you, protect your family, he's going to get you a lot of money, you're going to be successful, and everything's going to be good. We believe that. We have this theology of comfort, and I need you to know this, Jesus needs you to know this, that when the end is coming and we are living in the end times, there's not going to be comfort for any of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Will you expect that, and will you also endure it? Because Jesus knows our propensity. He knows your propensity and my propensity to believe in something that might get us out of suffering. And he says, these false gods, they're going to have supernatural powers, and they're going to say, if you believe in me, guess what? You won't be suffering anymore. He knows that some of us will say yes to that because we want to live in comfort. So he's preparing us to expect the suffering but also be willing to endure it. And he knows that you and I have this natural proclivity to believe in things that will tell us that we don't have to suffer anymore. He knows that we might be one of those chosen elects that actually ends up believing in those false gods. Do you know how easy it is for us to believe in false gods? We believe in false gods all the time. A false god is anything that you deem more important than God himself. We do that all the time. And we're not even suffering. Many of us believe in the false god of money, a piece of paper. 
That's definitely worth something in our day. But we believe so much in money that we believe that there's greater hope and greater joy if we have more money. You've drank the Satan Kool-Aid. You believe in that, and that's why you just, you keep it to yourself. You want to believe in it. I've talked to every rich person that I know, and I said, does it really bring you joy? No. Yeah, you don't have to worry about bills, but it doesn't bring joy. There's nothing wrong or nothing evil about money. It's the love of money that's evil. And for many of us, you got to protect yourself from falling in love with money because it's a false god. It's a terrible master to serve. It will destroy not only your life, but the lives of the people you love the most. We believe in that. We're not even suffering. In fact, we incorporate that into our theology and our understanding of God being a good God. That he's going to bless us financially. Success. We believe in the false God of success. We believe, we want the success. success. Why? Because we want people to admire us. You see, your false God is you. You're the false God because you want to be worshipped. You want to be worshipped. You want to be admired by people. And so you believe in the false God of success. That's what the American dream is all about. And Metro Community Church, the American dream is not God's dream for you. The American dream is something very different from what we've been learning in these five discourses. Success. Some of us, we, it's fame. We want that fame, right? For some of us, even good things like our children become a false God. We, our children become more important to us than God. And guys, you can never love your children properly if your child becomes more important than God. Marriage. Sometimes we think like marriage has become like an idol in our lives, particularly those who are single who may not be married. I get it. I understand it. I know you have a desire to want to get married. Totally, totally, I get it. But marriage is a terrible God to believe in. Right, married couples? Because if you're married, it don't lead to happiness all the time. It's hard. It's difficult. But somehow we believe that that is the most important thing. And for us, we'd be willing to compromise our biblical faith, our biblical values, everything, so that we can get married. It don't matter. And people have done that. And it's been so difficult. We have... We believe in false gods even when we're not suffering. Could you imagine when we start to suffer? Jesus says there's never going to be a time, uh, there's never going to be a time in the history of our world where there will be more suffering when, before I come. It's going to be so incredibly bad that he says if I don't shorten it, everyone's going to die. So I'm shortening it for you, for Christians. But it's going to be that bad. Are you willing to endure it? Are you willing to expect and endure it? Suffering isn't all bad. Now I know it's not easy to go through. Trust me, I know it's not. But suffering actually has rewards. Look at what it says in Romans 5, 3 to 5. Paul writes this under the conviction that he too has suffered tremendously for the sake of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces what? Perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us suffering is hard. I know it's not easy, but talk to any mom, they'll tell you who's given birth. It's worth the pain because they see the beauty of this child. And when you and I suffer and we suffer under the power of God because we suffer for our faith, it will produce a sense of perseverance, a perseverance that will lead to deep character 
And a character that leads to hope. Hope. Do you have hope today? Hope doesn't come unless you're willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. And when you and I encounter that kind of hope, what does Paul say? We will no longer live in shame. And you know why shame is so destructive for every single one of us? The ancient culture, shame is one of the major emotions that has destroyed our lives. Because shame teaches us not that we're capable of making a mistake. Shame tells us that we are the mistake. And when you think you're a mistake, how can you live under the power of God's love? You think you're not worthy of it because you are a mistake. And so Paul is saying that when you go through suffering, you're going to build perseverance, character, and a hope. And that hope is not going to put you to shame. And so when you don't live in shame, what you encounter is God's love that has been poured out into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why suffering is good. Suffering, you should never want it. You should never hope it. But when you go and you live and you expect and you endure it, it produces a fruit that is so deep, so rich, so real. And your faith truly, truly is tested in a way where it becomes personal. Nothing can ever shake you again. So will you expect and endure suffering? Because if you don't, you're going to be one of those chosen ones that follows the false gods. And a godly life, if you want to embrace a godly life, no matter what, like Jesus, when he was tempted, when he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights before he began his ministry by Satan, no matter what, Jesus suffered and he stood his ground. And after he suffered, that was when his ministry was able to begin. Prior to that, he never started his ministry until after he suffered. Why? My mentor, Peace Cozero, and I, he's, he teaches me this all the time. He wrote the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Leader. He says that my, he, I got together with him about a month and a half ago, and he said to me, he said, Peter, you know, what you're, you know where you are in your spiritual life and your discipleship? He says, you have to put yourself in a place every day where you can deny yourself, where you got to grow in self-denial. If you don't do that, particularly where you are now in your faith and your discipleship, you're not going to fully, fully be able to be used by God. You won't fully know the depth of your Father's love for you. you got to put yourself in a place of self-denial daily. you got to deny yourself. How do you prepare yourself to expect and endure suffering? You ever ask yourself that question? Start denying yourself today. Start living in self-denial. If you begin to do that, you will begin to build a tolerance to expect that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be incredible suffering for all of us. You're going to be able to deal with it. Why? Because you have grown in self-denial. That's what Jesus teaches us. He says, if you want to follow me, before you pick up your cross, what do you have to do? You must first deny yourself, then pick up your cross. The reason why discipleship is such a foreign concept for many of you is that you think you've picked up your cross, but you don't pick up your cross until you first deny yourself. And you haven't taken that step of denying yourself. Denying yourself of getting your way all the time. If you're in a position of power, denying yourself of always having to get your way and you have to submit yourself even to the people under you and you become their servant and they become your boss. Denying yourself in your marriage. You know why marriage is so hard and you can't see it as a God? Because I don't think there's another relationship that you have with somebody else on this earth in marriage where you will have to deny yourself if you want this marriage to work. That's the greatest, the greatest marriages that I see today are marriages where the couples have learned the important truth of denying themselves every single day. They're the ones who truly love their spouse. And they have this vibrant, fruitful relationship that they have together. Are you willing to deny yourself? 
Are you willing to deny yourself in ways? Deny yourself maybe the privilege of some foods that you like. Things that maybe you might be addicted to that you have to begin to deny yourself. Places where you will continue to grow in character so that you would have to humble yourself in such a way. Knowing that you all believe, you all, you all believe we're called to be servants of God. Amen? But why won't you let people treat you like one? Why won't you let people treat you like a slave? Because that's what servant means in the Greek. Doulos. Would you grow in self-denial? Because that's what Jesus had to do. That's what the disciples, that's what Paul had to do. If you grow in self-denial daily, you're going to be somebody who believes in God in such a way where you expect and you endure suffering. You'll be ready for the end times. All right? Second thing that Jesus teaches us in how we are to live a godly life is that we live a godly life when we live with the conviction of Jesus' return. You live a godly life when you live with the conviction of Jesus' return. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back one day? Do you believe he's truly coming back? Because if you believe that he's truly coming back, it's going to inform how you live your life today. That no matter how difficult life might get, as long as you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come one day in power and in glory, guess what? You can take whatever comes your way because you know he's coming back. No matter how bad things get, you will stand steadfast because you live with the conviction that he is coming back. When we, are con- when we live with conviction, it impacts how we live our lives. And you and I have to live with the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back. Look at verse 30. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he would send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they would gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heavens. Why is everyone going to mourn? Shouldn't we as Christians be celebrating when we see Jesus coming and the angels round us up? Shouldn't we be like, praise God, he's here. Why does Jesus say every single one of us is going to mourn? I know why the, the, the non-Christians are going to mourn. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, it's too late. You can't turn to Jesus anymore. When he comes back, they will mourn in such a way because they know that it's too late. And what does it mean when it's too late? You will go to a place where it's called weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's hell. It's too late. But why are we going to mourn? Why will you and I mourn? You know why? Because the people that we love that don't know Jesus are going to hell. And you're going to see how awful hell is because you've tasted a little bit of it before Jesus came. And that's going to be their eternal existence forever. That's why you and I are going to mourn. We're going to weep because our parents who don't know Jesus, our, our children who don't know Jesus, our uncles, our friends who don't know Jesus are going to hell. It's too late. That's why we're going to mourn. That's where we're going to go and mourn. We're not going to be joyful when we see Jesus Christ return because it's too late for them, the people that we love so very much. So we have to live with this conviction. If we don't live with the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back, we'll never live under the conviction of his words. See, that's why we have to live with the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back because then you and I can live under the conviction of his words. So many of us, you know, we've read the Bible. Some of you have read the Bible multiple times. But there's no conviction. You don't care about the conviction of it. You don't live under the conviction of the word of God. You just kind of 
read it. That's nice. Some of you think the Bible is just supposed to make you feel good. The Bible is not therapy. It's not supposed to be your counselor in that way. The Bible teaches us how we should live our lives with conviction, to know that we are deeply loved by God, so much so that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross, to resurrect from the dead. But then we live with the conviction of his return because he teaches us how we are to live our lives. And I'm telling you right now, and I, I'm not gonna, I don't want to predict, I'm not one of those guys that like to do this. But there's going to come a time, even here in America, where Christians are going to suffer great persecutions because we live under the conviction of the Bible. Because the more you look at where the world is, the world is going, when we take a biblical stand on things, we're going to be persecuted, even in this country. Verse 35, here's what Jesus says. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Will you believe that? Will you believe that the words of Jesus will never disappear? Don't just go with the flow of popular culture. As culture begins to change its ways and government begins to change its policies on certain things that are not congruent to the word of God, don't change just because everyone else is changing. Stay true to your convictions of the word of God, even if it means that you're going to suffer because when you stay true to that, you are living a godly life. No matter what. We have to be people that live with this kind of conviction. There's too many times where so many Christians don't live under the conviction of the word of God. And we live under the convictions of pop culture. Why? You think pop culture knows how to treat people well? Has pop culture done anything to help people to really be a blessed person? Has pop culture ever died for anyone? Why do we have to take our cues from popular culture? We're doing that right now. If I would bring up topics, certain topics, many of you have subscribed to already what the world subscribes to. That's not congruent to the Bible. And so why? Because the world teaches us an eye for an eye. Don't forgive people who have hurt you. We believe in that because we live it. We won't forgive those who have deeply hurt us. The world teaches revenge. And many of us love that idea of revenge. 14 days ago, 57 of us took on the forgiveness challenge. I send an email to you every single day just encouraging you. I've been having a lot of fun putting a Bible verse for us to meditate upon. And then I encourage you every single day to pray a blessing upon this person that you once saw as unforgivable. Why did 57 people sign up to do this? Because they live under the conviction of the word of God. Because Jesus says, remember Matthew 18? If you don't forgive people, I will not forgive you. My Father in heaven will not forgive you. Why are we living on the conviction of the word of God? If we live on the conviction of Jesus' words, it will change how you live your life. You will have so much peace. You will not give people power over your lives because you're not willing to forgive them. I had a friend say to me recently, he said, hey, I was invited to go to a good friend of mine's wedding, but I don't know if I can go to that wedding because there was a couple people there that I can't stand. I said, why are you giving those people that much power in your life? Unforgiveness, without you really realizing, is you are giving people that you can't forgive way too much power in your life. You have a good friend that's getting married and you don't want to go because of those two people you don't like? Well, you live under the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back and that means that you live under the conviction of his words. That's a godly life when you begin to do that. And the very last thing, the most important out of the, out of the three, I believe, is that we live a godly life when we live with a passion for the lost. 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again, if you truly believe with that conviction, will you have a passion for the lost? Because when they die and they don't know Jesus, there's a true certainty. They will be judged and they will go to hell. That's 100% fact. That's the truth. Look at what it says in verse 26. I'm going to read verses 26 to 29. Then we're going to jump over to 32 to 35, all right? So if someone tells you, look at the Messiah, look, the Messiah is out in the desert. Don't bother to go and look or look, he's hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Let's jump over to verse 32. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that the summer is near. And in the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Here's the truth. Satan is winning. There's a lot of people believing in false gods right now. It's happening even now. A lot of people. There needs to be a sense of urgency for you and I. Because one of the reasons why God put us on this earth isn't just so that you can feel loved by him. That, that's important. Because until you encounter the love of God, you're not going to have the sense of urgency to want other people to experience it. So that's key. You need to know who you are. You are a child to the son of, you are the child to the king of kings and lord of lords. You are royalty in God's eyes. But God is encouraging you not to just, you live under that royal status by yourself, but he wants you to have a passion that other people could be brought into the royal family. Do you have a passion for the lost? Because the lost right now are believing in these false gods. Do you have a passion for people? Because if you don't, the people you love the most who don't know Jesus, you will mourn when you see Jesus come. You're not going to be happy. You're going to mourn. Why? Because the people you love the most who don't know Jesus are going to be going to a place called hell for all eternity. Think about your family members. Think about your friends. Think about your coworkers who don't know Jesus Christ. Do you have a passion for them? Do you have a passion for them to be found by God? Because if you don't, you cannot be like Jesus. You cannot live a godly life. You won't live with the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back. There's something wrong. I'm talking to myself here when we don't have a passion for the lost. You become very selfish Christians that just care about yourself and don't care about the others that are one or two steps away from going to a place for all eternity called hell. And that's a sad place. Do you realize the people that God has brought into your life, family, friends, coworkers, are the people that God has put into your world so that you can lead them, so that you can be a part of this process of leading them to Jesus Christ? Now, we play, I, I believe, three types of roles. The first role we could play is that we're like the farmer. We sow the seed. That could be the role you play. But also the role you could play is you could be the far farmer who waters the seed. That's also a very significant part. Because unless that seed is watered, there will be no harvest. And maybe God will use you to harvest. All three are very important roles. 
And I want you to know that today you play a role in that. God wants you to have the conviction and the passion for the lost. That he wants you to plant a seed, water the seed, or bring in the harvest. Will you do that? Because that's what godly people do. That's the, that's the job description. That's our job description for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're not going to do that unless you deny yourself. Because there comes a cost to doing that. You've got to give up your comforts, all that stuff. And don't tell me you don't know the Bible enough to do that. It's not about you knowing the Bible enough. It's about you being a living testimony in the lives of people. That's really what it's about. And so today, will you begin to have a passion for the law? So where do you begin? Where do you start? Start praying for them. Start praying for them every single day. No matter how long it takes, pray that they will come to know Jesus Christ. The second thing is you should pray that God will give you an opportunity where you can share your story of how God has transformed your life. That's the best way to do evangelism. You don't have to give a theological disposition if Jesus was really God or not. Show them that he's God by your testimony. That's how you do it. Share your life story of how God has transformed your life. Don't worry about the results because that's not up to you. That's up to God. Some of us, we care too much about the results that it affects us. Don't worry about the results. Just be faithful because you're either going to plant the seed, water the seed, or if you get so blessed, you could harvest that seed. Even if they say no, you're still watering the seed. You know that, right? And so have a heart. You have a heart for the lost. Because Jesus says this in verse 14 of chapter 24. He says, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. God is giving us a mandate that if you want to embrace the godly lifestyle today, you've got to have a passion for the lost. So start to pray. Pray that God would help you to share your story, your testimony of how God's impacted your life. Share that. Invite them to church. I encourage you to do that. Let God use you. You don't ever underestimate the power of how God can use you. Next uh, Sunday, we talk about this. We have the Fun Fest in the open store. I'm really shocked that Englewood actually called us. You know, we're a church. <laughs> the city called us and said, hey, we would like to partner with you. That's the credibility we've built of being here for about uh, 15 years. And Sunita did a walkthrough with them in McKay Park. What's going to happen next Sunday? And guys, it's going to be huge. They're getting a petting zoo. Like crazy stuff is happening. It's going to be some amazing stuff. Guys, there's going to be potentially thousands of people that come that Sunday that don't know Jesus. And they're lost. Completely lost. Why can't you be God's hands and feet? Why can't you open up your trunks, put some candy in there so the lost can come to you and maybe just smile at them and give them a candy. You just don't know what can happen. Just be open to God. Why can't we do that? We'll give you opportunities to have a passion for the lost, but you've got to take advantage of it. We have to be willing to take advantage of it. If we don't have passion for the lost, then the lost are going to hell. Simple as that. And I know you have family and friends who don't know Jesus. Godly living happens when we expect and endure suffering, when we live with the conviction of Jesus' return, when we have a passion for the lost. We've been talking in, a couple weeks ago in Matthew 18 when the disciples, you know, go to Jesus. And they always, you know, we always want to be the greatest at everything we do. 
So it's like, hey, Jesus, how can I be the greatest in God's eyes? And what does Jesus do? He takes a little child and says, be like this child. And, you know, we've been kind of unpacking, what is it about children that makes them the greatest in Jesus' eyes? You know what it is, I think, another aspect to them? When they have conviction, they really believe it. Um, nothing kind of was more clear to me when this happened several years ago. My, my in-laws are not Christian. Since I've been married to Jenny for the past 22 years, every night, my family, including my, my wife, myself, and my children, we pray for their salvation. We pray that they would find Jesus. And it was really cool because Ansi told me that uh, when our kids were little and they were upstairs in like the junior high ministry and stuff like that, they would always ask, what is your prayer request? And they would always say, my prayer request is that my, my grandparents would become Christians. Because they believe in heaven. And they have a heart for that. And, uh, and so, but nothing came more sort of like a reminder of the realities of this was, I, I don't remember the exact time. I don't know why our families all got together, but one of my nieces, I'm not going to embarrass her, we were together as a family, and she just started weeping. And we were all like shocked. Like, what's going on with her? Like, why? What's happening? And so I, I remember my father-in-law, he took her, her in his lap and says, what's the matter? What's going on? And in tears, she says this. She says, you won't be with me in heaven. And I want you to be with me in heaven. And she was crying. And I saw that. That's why children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because when they see the lost, they cry. They're broken. Because they know that they're not going to be there. The loved ones are not going to be there with them. What's happened to our hearts? What's led us to be so cold? What's led us to even think like, well, listen, you made that decision to say no, so you're going to go to a place where you deserve to go. Why have we become so callous? Why can't we have a passion for the lost like little children do? My hope is that God would reinvigorate a fire in your heart, in your soul, for the lost people in your life. And you will begin to pray that God could use you to be a living testimony to lead them to Jesus Christ. May you plant the seed. May you water that seed. May you even bring a harvest to that seed. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So I want you to think about the people that don't know Jesus. Let's make this about, not you today, let's make this about the people that God has brought into your life that don't know Jesus Christ. Could I ask you to really pray that they would find Jesus and that God would use you to be a living testimony to them? I'm just going to give you a moment to do that, and then I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I pray you would forgive us for having such callous hearts. I pray you would forgive us for not really living with the conviction that you're going to come back one day and that the people that don't know you, when you do come back, it will be too late. 
that will enter into an existence of eternity that is hell, where the best way to describe hell is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth every second of eternity. And so, God, we submit these names that we've brought to you today. And we pray, God, that they would be found by you. I pray, God, that you would use the people, use my brothers and sisters that are part of their lives as such a way where they could begin to share their story of how you've transformed their lives. And like my little niece, that they would have such a passion and a broken heart, worried that the lost people that they love will not be with them in heaven if they don't turn to Jesus. So God, I pray that you would give us a passion for the lost. Help us to live with this deep conviction that you're coming back. And because we are living in the end times, the signs are all there right now. We don't know when you're coming back, but help us to be ready and to live with that conviction that you are coming. May we have passion for the lost. Help us to expect, but help us to endure suffering as we grow in daily self-denial. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Can you please uh, go to your communication card on your app? And there's some next steps that I'd love for you to take that you can actually allow this sermon to be very concrete in your life. All right? So first one, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ and you're here, maybe somebody invited you, check it off. We will get back and say, you know what, Peter, I want to give my life to Jesus. I don't want to be one of those lost that when Jesus comes back, it's too late. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, please check that off. We'll get back to you and we'll help you and partner with you and how you can grow. This will be exciting for us to walk with you in that way. Second, I will attend in-person service for the next four weeks. Now, I'm so glad because the last couple of weeks when people have been coming back. But if you're watching online, I want to encourage you to come back. Come back home. If you're allowing your children to go back to school, if you're going back into work, if you're eating at restaurants and going away and stuff like that, it's time to come home. Because in order to really grow with the body, you got to be in the flesh with the body rather than just watching online. Come back. We'd love to have you. Third, I'm going to pray for the lost people in my life, that you're going to consciously pray every day for the lost people in your life and maybe get others to pray with you because the more prayer, the better, all right? Four, I want to volunteer my car trunk for the Fall Fun Fest on October 31st. We have about 11 people who signed up. We need about 20 to 25 because, again, the whole city's coming. And so why not offer your trunk for a few hours? Give people some sweets, but hopefully they can encounter the sweetness of God through your life. All right, so let's sign up. You can sign up at the door there. You can sign up online, and we'll make sure we get you some information. Fifth, I want to volunteer for the Fall Fun Fest on October 31st. We do need some people to volunteer to help out, uh, like kind of patrol the area, sort of provide security, you know, and stuff like that. You know, so we, we do need some of that. And then we also need people to volunteer for the open store for October 31st. All right, uh, the open store is like a free flea market where the Jewish community and, and our church, we're getting together and we're going to offer great clothing for the winter for the people in Englewood who really need it, for their children and for themselves. And so if you have any good clothing too for the winter, make sure you wash it and donate it. But we also need some help to volunteer to help us with that. There's a lot of work to be done. If you're interested, please check that off. Okay?